Changing conversations. Hey, what's up? This is Julie Pilot. Ten years ago, I was on a flight reading uh, Time magazine and found an article about our most precious resource, time. A concept was popping up all over the world called time banking, where communities were getting together and sharing resources with their neighbors through a system based on reciprocity. The concept, an hour of my time is worth an hour of your time. I looked and there was a time bank in Echo Park by my house where I lived and I joined. Every month, neighbors would get together for a potluck, usually with guest speakers, and they would receive a time bank credit for attending and another for taking something to the potluck. On the time banking platform, you needed to list skills or things you had to offer. I put music biz advice, social media, and philanthropy. Then people could hit you up for help in exchange for time credits. For example, the best caterer in Silver Lake didn't understand how to use Twitter for her business. So we went and had coffee, I helped her, and I received a time credit. A songwriter would hit me up because they didn't understand how to get their music to artists. Again, over coffee, something that was easy for me, I'd help them for an hour and get a point. So now, after going to the meetup, Taking something to the potluck, helping the caterer, helping the songwriter, I had four time credits and I could go shopping. Through the years, as I was time banking, I had a stylist from HBO reorganize my closet, an environmentalist build me a vegetable garden, I used my time credits for my first ever acupuncture treatment, a photographer shot a charity event, and I even took a drum lesson. The best part about it was I made friends for life. Last year, I found out the founder of Time Banking, Dr. Edgar Kahn, was working with friends on a new platform, Ying Bank, to take the concept to the next level. Ying will be an opportunity for more people to discover time banking. So, Dr. Edgar Kahn, just to start, an hour of my time is worth an hour of your time? People ask me, how can I, as a lawyer, use my time and that be equal to a fifth grader helping a third grader with homework. And I explain to them, an hour is my slice of eternity. How is my slice of eternity worth more than that child's slice of eternity? That's priceless. Mm. Do people, when they start getting into time banking or learning about it, have you found, is trust an issue? The strange thing is we're all taught that we can't trust anybody. But in time banking, it's almost as if you walk into a new kind of extended family. If somebody called you who's a distant relative from the East Coast and said, my daughter's coming to the West Coast, can she stay with you? The first thing you would say is, of course. And you would not say, well, first I have to do a background check, and then I have to take out high-risk insurance, and if she clears those boundaries, yes, she can stay with me. No, you say your family. Well, there's a sense that time banking is a community of strangers you can trust like extended family. What would you say to people that feel they're very independent or that they don't need help? 
or are prideful. Is there anything you would say for them to open up and accept help? Well, I remember negotiating with a guy from Boston who was earning time credits, and he was saying, well, I don't need any help. And I had to say to him, we need you to ask for help because if people won't ask for help, nobody can earn it. And if we can't generate numbers, we can't get funding. So you've got to do it for the program to get the funders to fund it. And he said, all right, I helped this guy with Alzheimer's to get a haircut, and it took three hours, but the most I'm willing to ask for is one hour of help. No way I'm going to ask for three hours of help. <laughs> so it's a negotiation process. And, and if people understand they're helping you get the program going and this helps generate the numbers that make it real, then it's important. The other piece is we're seeing, I think, the beginning of enterprises where membership in a time bank will entitle people to special treatment or discount or, or things like that. And so we'll begin to see people wanting to earn and spend in a more systematic way and keep the records. And I think the other thing is we're also seeing time banking particularly helpful to different groups of people who are trying to enter the job market but don't have a work record. That may mean teenagers, that may mean single moms, that may mean people coming back from prison, that may mean immigrants who are coming to this country who have no way of establishing a work record. So we're seeing an increased need for it, a need for people to establish that they can be trusted, that they're reliable, that they have the soft work skills necessary to show up on time. And those are the kinds of things that time banking really helps advance our public policy and public initiatives. That's kind of part of the secret, right? I think a lot of people think that when they're going to help, they're putting on their angel wings and going to help somebody. But if you as a person are open to receiving help, that can be a gift for another person, like you were saying. Somebody giving them confidence that they have value entering the job market. When people understand that receiving help is really a gift, I talk to people about, well, you felt good helping somebody. Don't you think that you would like to enable them to feel as good as you did? And that's what the reciprocity, that's what the pay it forward piece is about. And they say, oh yeah, I don't need to keep all the good feeling to myself. In fact, that would be selfish. So you're in this constant debate about how do you accept help and how do you give, get people to pay it forward? It seems like that's something the world's still kind of figuring out. <laughs> You've noticed, yeah. I think that until we begin to understand our own interdependence and really incorporate it in our thinking, that was the process that led me to evolve the concept of co-production because we're not just talking about good deeds. We're talking on the one hand about transactions that are not transactions that build relationships. Simply helping somebody is not simply an isolated act. It in fact enables them. You see them on the street, you'll wave to them. If you have a birthday party, you'll invite them. So it opens a door into that person's life. But when you move into what helping professionals do, and they've devoted their lives to taking below market wages and taking on workloads that are impossible because that's what they wanted to do. And then you come along with something called time banking that says, and every hour is equal, 
And that is sometimes a source of distress, and their agencies don't get funding for what the clients do. They only get funding for the units of service that are delivered by staff. So you're talking about a real paradigm shift in terms of how we go about systematically mobilizing resources to make a difference. And I think the most powerful thing that we can do is get professionals to understand that if they don't enlist the people they're helping as partners, that what they do will have limited effect, won't realize the impact they want it to have, and will tend to evaporate over time. But that involves a whole shift in policy and a whole shift in how professionals are trained. When I train my law students, we train them to ask, what is your legal problem? Getting them to ask and who are you, and tell me about the things you do, and tell me about your kids, and tell me about your networks, because we're going to need them to deal with crime, to deal with tutoring, to deal with elder care. That's a whole other process that is not part of how we train helping service professionals. I mean, that's interesting when you spoke about people just identifying with their job, Mm -hmm. that they're just one thing. They're a lawyer, or a teacher, or a mechanic. I think... Uh, sometimes with time banking, people have a hard time figuring out what they can offer. What do you tell people who are lost? I don't know what I could offer in the time bank. So the whole notion that you are more than your resume and you are more than the thing that you're paid to do really involves a mind shift. And what Ying is doing is producing a way in which people can see that. And I'm hoping that Ying will also be able to print out for people who don't necessarily use smartphones their own yellow pages so that every neighborhood, every housing complex, uh, every congregation, every student body will have its own yellow pages. That makes a lot of sense. You've been doing time banking now for 30 years. What are some of your fondest memories? Whether it's people unexpectedly matching or you personally, times you've had help. Or have you ever taken a drum lesson (laughs) in time banking? Something unexpected. Well, there's a deeper consequence for me about time banking. I, I don't know whether you know that this started in intensive care in the hospital. I had a heart attack in 1980 that blew away 60% of my heart, according to the enzyme tests. They gave me two years to live and at best two good hours a day that maybe I could function. And so lying there with all the tubes going through me and little zigzags on the, you know, on the machines telling me that I was at least still alive, I started thinking about how does a useless person use the only two hours he has, and I'm not going to let those be useless if that's all I've got. Now, that was 1980. We had a recession, and there were a lot of other people declared useless. And I thought about, I don't think they like being useless any more than I do. And how do we begin to put that together? And I realized that I would never get money to pay all the useless people to do all the community service, to take on all the social problems that I knew were out there and and with and federal programs at the time were being cut back. That was 1980. Reagan had just come in and announced that all the programs that I had helped start in the Kennedy years and the Johnson years were going to be cut back. So I started thinking about that, and I thought, well, 
if we can't use one kind of money, why can't we invent another kind of money? At that point, some of my friends thought that heart attack probably got to a different organ, uh, but uh, we had a sort of family meeting, and one of my sons said, Dad, you don't know any economics. Your PhD is in literature. You're a lawyer, but uh, you better go to the London School of Economics because you've got this theory of we can create another kind of money and we can deal with, and we can do it without price. And they will tell you uh, either you're right or you're going to be running the biggest pyramid scheme <laughs> ever. So I'm very clear that I'm here because I get up every morning feeling that maybe I can make a difference in somebody else's life. And we don't understand mind-body yet, but something inside me told those cells, you better get your act together. There are skills people have that you can't put on a resume, right? We saw that when I worked with folks coming out of prison. And I actually have one of them come in and co-teach my law school class. His name is Mr. T. And uh, when I was asked by one foundation head, could I come up with something that would make a difference for folks coming out of prison using time banking? I said, okay, uh, but I don't know what. I had read all the studies and of different programs by a labor department and others, second chance. But they tended to have like a 70% return rate within three years. So I said, the only way I know to proceed is first to sit down and talk with people. So Chris and I uh, talked with uh, folks from prison, and she met with them, and we met with them. And first we asked, what did you want to be called? And how do we refer to you? not as ex-cons. So after some discussion that Chris facilitated, they decided they wanted to be called as homecomers because they were coming home. And then the question was, you can call yourself a homecomer, but when you knock on doors, people are going to ask, what's a homecomer? And that's still going to scare them. So they thought about that, and they thought, well, if we could say we were students, people wouldn't be afraid of us. I said, well, I'm at a university, but the university has a community college, but you wouldn't be accepted there. So they said, well, can we create our own Homecomers Academy? So they did, and then uh, we said, hey, but you got to have a syllabus. So they came up with a mind-body-spirit curriculum, and the mind was dealing with what they should have learned in high school and grammar school and so forth. The body was the 12-step program dealing with substance abuse, and the spirit was time banking, and they would go into community to provide safe passage to kids across gang territory and hang out at metro stops where there had been muggings because they explained they had antenna that we didn't have, and they would know when something was going to happen, and the muggings would plummet. So Mr. T was one of those original founders. And I said, you know, my law students can help people in prison and deal when they come out in terms of their sentence and in terms of reentry, but they need help understanding what those folks are dealing with and what that stigma means. So he comes and teaches them before they go into the law school's clinic to help people who are reentry. 
and we've worked with him, and he teaches classes. When I teach the introductory orientation class, he's the one who talks to them about the neighborhoods they're going to see, and he takes them through those neighborhoods. So all I can say is he's part of extended family. When we started looking at what happened to kids who drop out of school and who get in trouble and set up the youth court, The youth court is made up entirely of juries of kids who have been in trouble, been sentenced by fellow teenagers to do community service and to sit on the jury. And then when we met with them and I asked them, well, what's the next thing we need to do to make a difference? They said, we want to tackle big problems. We like helping individuals, but we really want to tackle big problems. And I said, what's a big problem? And they said, well, schools, drugs, and the police are big problems. I said, I vouch for that. But I said, well, the only vehicle I know to look at a big problem is a grand jury. Would you like to be a youth court grand jury? I said, that's going to be six months of giving up every other Saturday to learn the facts, to learn the alternatives, and, and to come to your own conclusions about how the D.C. system is working. Thirteen of them volunteered and they stuck through the six months. At the end of six months they indicted the mayor, they indicted the drug agency, and uh, they said, you're not using the programs that work, you're not funding the programs that are community-based, you're not listening to what kids tell you they need, uh, and you're not enlisting us. If you want to enlist us, we need to be trained as peer mentors uh, so that we know what to say to kids. We've made a decision ourselves we don't want to use drugs, but that doesn't mean we know how to help our, our fellow teenagers for whom that's the way in which they can get what they need to buy. So we need to be trained. The mayor implemented all of those recommendations, shifted $2 million to implement their recommendations, and named them to be the advisory group that that shaped how the district framed uh, its programs when it was applying for federal funding. So that was another time bank situation. I love it. You mentioned the election, and I'm so curious because you worked in a time that I've heard so much about, but I didn't live it. You were a speechwriter in the Kennedy era, and you hear about things that were happening in that time, whether it was the Peace Corps becoming a program or... There's a movie that came out in the last year, The Lovings, about Robert Kennedy helping with interracial marriage. And it just seemed like that was a period of time where there was so much magic happening, so much social change. And I'm curious what that time felt like for you, what you got from that era, and then at what point you decided to kind of move away specifically from politics. Well... You're right. That was an era where Kennedy could say, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And that was a time when maybe it was partly because of Ralph Nader, partly because of the work that I and my late wife did, but that was the birth of public interest law. I worked for Shriver in both the Peace Corps and the War on Poverty, and there was a universal sense that growing up meant we were here to make a difference in the world and that we had the power to make a difference in the world. Somewhere around the Reagan era, 
it became all about money and wealth. And not only was selfishness okay, but selfishness was a virtue. And the more you could aggregate, the more you were to be respected. And if you didn't aggregate and you didn't build wealth for yourself, somehow you were either misguided or not very worthwhile. And we went into a world which the value of everything was determined by market price. The nonprofit world that proliferated in the 60s with discretionary grants all became a matter of how do we compete for grants? It all became about money and staff and growth. The legal profession ceased to be a calling and it became about billable hours. The medical profession, you have six minutes as the most you can spare to make sure that you balance the books. The churches became about building megachurches. Teaching became about test scores. And so we were driven by quantitative measures that obliterated commitments to a whole domain of value that was not quantifiable and primarily quantifiable in cost-benefit terms. And the foundations certainly fed that. Funding sources fed that. You didn't get paid for what your clients did. You got paid for what staff did. And so it all became a matter of what I would call a monoculture, where money was the sole definition of value. And I see time banking as bringing in the equivalent of polyculture, that we can begin to understand that there are different measures of value, both in learning and in serving, and that when we begin to create what I will call a value polyculture, we can begin to see really a vibrant new sense of community and a vibrant pride in what we have as a democracy and what we can give to the rest of the world. Because right now we are a bubble of privilege in a world where living on one or two dollars a day is all too pervasive. I think you can preach at them, but I think one of my hopes is that time banking really operates as a form of political education that says you matter and every hour you give matters and you can be part of a movement that takes a stand about value. And that it is only if you're willing to do that that we can make the world the kind of world you want. Because I think what people have come to believe is that they don't matter, that their vote doesn't matter, that their engagement doesn't matter. But you know, it's strange. We have a currency that rewards greed a currency that rewards brand loyalty, a currency in grades and academic credits that reward learning, but we have no currency that, until time banking that rewarded being the best human being you can be. What I see, and there's a dropping off of organized religion, but there's not a dropping off in a hunger for spirituality is what I sense. And I think that there's something about time banking that is both about economics, but it's also about answering the question, why am I here? And do I have a purpose for being here? And I think if people can find a purpose, can find a way of saying, my life means something, we will see them active in politics, and we will see a change in political climate. I think that's fantastic. There's that quote from Margaret Mead. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. 
We, uh, we have to live by that, and as I told you, getting up each morning is why I'm still here, because I believe that. And I believe that we have a spiritual essence that says we need to find a purpose for being here, and we've relied too heavily on market and price and jobs. But we're looking at a world where the way in which people had found meaning, we see that in the Midwest particularly, we saw that in the election. It's people feeling that the system doesn't value them, doesn't need them. Uh, they're looking at industrialization and they're looking at technology and they're looking at robots and they're looking at artificial intelligence. and. We know that those tendencies and that capacity is going to grow. But I think that the work of the future is around caring, is around preserving the planet, is around enabling political systems to remain faithful to the promises that the elected officials made, to making local government and local systems work, to enabling folks who are in NGOs to really realize their dream and their mission by enlisting the people they're helping. There will be no end of work that needs to be done, but it is not now work that the market values. And so I think we needed a different medium of exchange to enable us to make that transition to a world that's coming. I want people to know what a miracle a human being is. We have, I was reading that the number of synaptic connections of the neurons in our brain that a newborn baby grows up with, and that within two or three years, those synaptic connections exceed the number of stars in the universe. We're carrying that around in our heads, and we better figure out how to use it. When people get so isolated in their bubbles, What's the best way to push them out? <laughs> I mean, again, you said you can't preach, but that's something I struggle with when people don't understand that everybody has value or that people are the same and people are becoming more and more divided in their own bubbles. A bunch of different answers, actually. I think all of us have two different natures inside of us. If we're threatened and scared, the adrenaline pumps up, and we act in our most defensive, productive, draw-into-ourselves manner. But I also think that we are born and wired to care about others, and that we want to be our biggest self. You know, that's not a complicated theory, that's a sense that... And so the question really becomes, how do we nurture the bigger self and how do we deal with the self that is really motivated by fear in a very protective way? If you give most people a chance, they would say, I'd rather think of myself as a kind, decent human being. How can I do that? When you ask them politically, they feel alienated from a system that has sent them a message that they don't matter, that their voices don't matter. So I think it's a matter, on the one hand, of using vehicles that say you can create alternatives. And I think we need a whole mentoring squad to make that feel real. I think Peace Corps did that. We had that as a dominant culture, when the hot thing to do was 
not to be negative, but at least being negative at least gives you an identity if you don't have any other options. Uh, and I just think that time banking, n neither left nor right, own respect for human beings, own respect for capacity. And if we begin to appeal to the capacity of people to be bigger than themselves, I think they will respond. That's maybe idealistic. I think the species wants to survive. I think we're feeling like, you know, we're dinosaurs looking at the end of our era when, in fact, we can be evolving into a whole other set of possibilities. And I think that it's not just that technology makes that possibilities. I think we've got that possibilities and that we need to nurture that possibilities.